You're listening to a WebYeshiva.org podcast. Visit www.webyeshiva.org to take part in our fully interactive online yeshiva. Visit blog.webyeshiva.org for more free downloadable Torah content. This is Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid and the Web Yeshiva with another installment of our Jewish Educators Book Club. And today I'm sitting with, with an old friend, uh, Dr. Moshe Simon Shoshan, author of Stories of the Law, Narrative Discourse and the Construction of Authority in the Mishnah, recently published by Oxford University Press, available at all fine bookstores, but likely best to catch it on, uh, on Amazon. Uh, the, the, the book is a description of the, the presence of the tension between different literary styles in the Mishnah, which I think we all correctly think of the Mishnah principally, first and foremost, as a legal code, a halachic code, but uh, students of Mishnah will be aware, although some people less familiar may be surprised to know, that there are many great narrative passages, what we sometimes think of as, as Agadah as well in the Mishnah, and the book deals with the presence of the narrative material in this legal code, raises questions of which types of literary analysis and, and literary theory can be brought to bear on the Mishnah as, as a whole, uh, the relationship, the organic relationship, or the tense relationship between these two, between these two parts. And, and therefore, it's, uh, it, it raises very many uh, topics and questions that will principally, uh, beyond the academic community, uh, teachers of Torah Shabbat should be conversant in, fluent in, aware of, because there's a lot in this book which should be informing our pedagogical practice in the Mishnah classroom, in the Torah Shabbat classroom, or, or even the Gemara classroom uh, that we should be aware of. So is that a fair summary of, of, of uh, what summary. we've done here in the book? Um, I'd emphasize that it's not just the interesting stories. One of the things that I was interested in doing is that scholars tend to focus on the interesting stories that, are, you know, that people like to read and talk about. Like the Tanur Shalach Nai, for right, example. Right, right. Or any of the long stories, or within the Mishnah, the more famous stories, Konihim Agel, okay. which are stories I deal with as right. well, but that these stories have to be understood as part of a continuum, part of the same form as these very simple stories that are all over the Mishnah, also all over the Gemara. And the question is, why do you need to tell even these simple stories to tell halacha. It's not necessarily necessary. The Rambam doesn't tell stories. Why does right. the Mishnah need stories so bad? Right. And, and, well, there you go. There's, there's the question. Why does the Mishnah need these stories? Why in a legal code do we put in well, there, a Gaddic text? There are a few interrelated um, issues. One is that the term Agadic might not isn't necessarily the best term. As I argue, these stories sort of stand the bridge or show the problematic nature of this division between halacha and Agadah because on the one hand we associate all stories with Agada on the other hand they're so closely connected to Halakha and the way it's expressed so there are multiple levels one is we have to think about that the way in which you express law affects the way in which you understand the nature of the law so that if you express law in terms of stories then you're expressing your understanding of law is something that's specific. Stories deal with particular events, and something that is somehow dynamic because stories always involve change. There's no change. There's no story. Which, in contrast with 
a concept of law which sees as a bunch of rules and categories, in which case you see it as more of an abstract system, which, you know, the individual applications are almost trivial or secondary. And what makes the Mishnah distinct from a lot of other codes is that it throws together these two forms almost indiscriminately as if saying, we're not going to decide between those two models. We're not going to decide between them. We have to sort of hold on to both all at once. That's in terms of the general. But within the Mishnah, more specifically, these stories collectively also uh, create sort of an infrastructure of building infrastructure of rabbinic authority, that by telling these stories over and over and over again, these simple stories in which the rabbis are constantly ruling on cases, or the rabbis' actions are constantly shown as the basis of the law, or they are shown to be um, creating law, we see that the rabbis are the center of the whole system, which once again is not obvious. If the system is a bunch of abstract principles, then the rabbis are only authoritative in as much as they know the law, but if someone else knows just as well, that's fine. And this is saying, no, these rabbis are the center of the system. So that's one of the interesting uh, themes that comes up in the book and then is demonstrated by a number of the stories you analyze. Um, uh, you, you mentioned here in the, uh, in the introduction that, uh, that uh, the, the stories do not simply transmit individual rulings, but also participate in a larger dialogue regarding the nature and extent of rabbinic authority. So why, why, why is that? Why is that particular issue, the nature and function of rabbinic authority, the nature and, and extent uh, limits of rabbinic authority, why is that something which, uh, which the authors of the Mishnah, the redactor of the Mishnah, thought it particularly important to embody not as straightforward directive, but to embody in, in the form of, of narrative story? As you, you can also imagine, think for example, uh, the Constitution of the United States, legal text, no narrative component in it all, aside from a little, you know, flowery, poetic uh, 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 intro line in the preamble. But the articles of the Constitution themselves have absolutely no narrative component whatsoever. But yet, they they very clearly, uh, the Constitution very clearly outlines the the scope, limits, and authority that executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch all have. It can be done without narrative. Why does the Mishnah It can be done, but we're talking about a very different sort of text. The Mishnah is a text that's supposed to be studied and memorized, and not just something that's sitting there as a text for reference. And by sort of going over and particularly memorizing these stories with these common patterns over and over and over again, it it allows the person to internalize these, these values. It doesn't just simply state them, but by demonstrating them and making us sort of follow through over and over again, these, these values are internalized in the student of the Mishnah. On the other hand, stories also, particularly more complicated stories, also allow for a certain amount of ambiguity, which a, a which is these straight sort of declarations aren't going to allow. And the Mishnah, in a lot of particularly the more complicated stories, is constantly sort of tweaking and questioning how this system works. Are these rabbis really so authoritative? Isn't that problematic? How do we know who a rabbi is? What happens when rabbis argue with each other? Um, doesn't uh, do the rabbi, are the rabbis always effective? And as a result of this, it creates not just what I call uh, an authoritative discourse, a, a, a text which is trying to impose, explain authority, but also creates a discourse of authority, an open discussion about the authority. And it's this willingness to open the discussion, which is much clearer 
in the stories in the Gemara, which I think is one of the things that distinguishes the halakhic process. A, a demand for authority, on the other hand, a willingness to challenge and to um, examine the sources of that authority and perhaps the problematic nature of it all at the same time. I think that's sort of one of the things that really distinguishes these stories. One of the kind of uh, uh, ingrained notions of you know, yeshiva study, let's say, broadly defined, is this dichotomy between legal and narrative, between halakha and agadah, although you, know, you put in the caveat that what we're talking about here is not technically agadah, but let's use it for in a, in a broader kind of colloquial sense. Um, and part of what you argue in the book is that this this division is is not uh, doesn't really reflect what the authors of the Mishnah set out to do, and but neither is it is it helpful to us as students of texts nor as teachers of the text. So could you speak to that? Uh, what it's, you mean not that? Not, it's not that it's not helpful. The distinction clearly exists. Think about the Mishnah in the Gemara and throughout Chazal. They have a concept of halacha and agada. And these and there are some texts which are clearly halacha and some texts which are clearly agada. But that doesn't mean that there's a, that there's some fundamental metaphysical difference between them that they have to be read in such a fundamentally different way, and that there's such a clear line between them. That only happens with the Gaonim, when the Gaonim and their inheritors, the Rambam and the like, uh, declare that basically there's a fundamental difference that halacha is the word of God, which is fundamentally binding, and Agadah is the opinions of the rabbis, and some of it's interesting, some of it's not. It might have some deep secrets, but we're not totally bound by it. And once you have to make that distinction, which comes out... Or, or it's speaking to, you know, larger moral right. directives. It's speaking, but those moral directives, but it's not... It's right, it's not yeah. but, but it doesn't have the same guiding force. And once you make that distinction, which is necessary for someone who's taking a rational worldview, someone who's reading philosophy, then all of a sudden you just get these rigid categories. The categories are valuable, but they're just not as all-encompassing or fundamental as they later become for later people. Now, the question of bringing literary tools, literary theory, kind of a component tools in the toolbox of the modern scholar and learner and reader, some of which have kind of passed into, into general, uh, you know, use even by osmosis to the average person sitting and reading Chumash in uh, you know, in, in his shul, unbeknownst to him, he's he's thinking and he's listening to Kriyat the Torah. And the question that might arise in his mind is something that's generated by his exposure to a type of literary reading of a text. And of course, you know, there are there are proponents of uh, within the modern Orthodox community, there are proponents of literary analysis of principally of, of Tanakh. Um, which have become very popular in the past number of years. But maybe just outline for the listeners, what are some of those key components in literary analysis and literary theory that we use, sometimes unbeknownst to ourselves, that are, that are, that are again, useful, that are profitable to the engaged reader of, in your example, of narrative and Mishnah? Just to, on the, the most basic level, in terms of reading stories, um, these are things that a lot of people, particularly people with Western high school educations, and actually Israeli education is very different in terms of this, are things that we take for granted, but in fact are things that are start to emerge in the mid-20th century with the new criticism and, and, and various, uh, so what we start to consider contemporary approaches to literature. 
just the notion that we think of a story, it has a plot, it has characters, it has a setting, there's a structure to the, to the, to the plot. These sorts of very basic sort of things which we do almost instinctively are not at all obvious. Mm -hmm. And once we start questioning them, we realize that, well, maybe there are better and worse ways of doing it. And very importantly, I think, for a lot of these literary readings, which I think aren't successful or are successful only not as readings, but perhaps more as you know, developments or a new form of midrash, is that we have to understand where this comes from. All of these tools come largely from reading the 19th century novel, modern novels. And to the extent that there's something in common between these traditional stories that we're reading and those, then it's great. But sometimes there's sort of a tendency to sort of assume all sorts of things about these stories, which I think perhaps are not always uh, always there. Uh, do, you, do you have any examples of, pedagogically speaking, uh, uh, of teachers? This would be very interesting. In other words, uh, the Mishnah teacher, the Gemara teacher, and the literature teacher, um, you know, if that literature teacher is so uh, oriented and committed uh, you know, to our larger goals, which unfortunately in, in Yeshiva high schools is, you know, could be the case, but just as often might not be the case, uh, of people working in, in, uh, in any kind of team teaching or doing, that would be an interesting uh, it study. It would be interesting. I think there's more potential for that in Tanakh because ultimately the focus of Mishnah and Gemara classes, I think very rightfully so, in junior high school, high school is on halakhic texts. Um, you need to get there's a certain set of skills or even more right. test sheets to be given. Obviously, you know, sometimes you could deal with that. I think in terms of literary tools in those classes, I think it's much more important because it's much more important in terms of giving the students a sense of a sort of a shot meaning of the text. And to realize that this isn't just something not just simply in the case of the mission case of, of the Mishnah, that's not just something that gets read by the Gemara, something that has to be read independently. And that it's to be that we that the students can use the tools that they that they naturally use to read texts, to read the Mishnah, to read the Gemara. And that often is lost as there's a jump towards this higher sort of conceptualization, later interpreters. And I think that often leaves students confused. Because the first thing is just to understand what the words mean using our sort of most basic yeah. tools. Yeah. Um, some larger implications of what you're doing in the in the book for the Orthodox community at large, for the for the community of people that are engaged with studying prime primary Jewish texts or the, the core of Torah Shabbat texts. What might someone take away from the book well, for their own reading, for their own learning? Right. Um, in terms of the modern Orthodox community, I think that, first of all, you have this, just the nature that the notion these texts are more complex than you might see them, and these stories are more complex, and that these ideas about authority are perhaps more complicated. In general, I think, has an important value. But more specifically, and this is something I didn't do intentionally, but it's something that certainly occurred to me as I was working on this project, is that Within the minor Orthodox community today, there are a lot of various, very heated halachic disputes over key issues, including various women issues and related issues. And what part of the problem is, is that the people who are arguing have totally different concepts of what halacha is. And they're just talking clear past each other as a result. And the problem is that there's very little self-reflexive discussion of, well, what do we mean? How does this work? 
And if you listen to these people, you can often see them formulating these things. But I really think that a more reflective discussion of what people think about halakha and how it works, once again, the extent to which it sort of is abstract system, the place of rabbinic authority, um, perhaps more clearly thought about, I think really would, would benefit and might also lower the, the, the volume and the temperature mm-hmm. in some of these conversations. Uh, do you want to lead us briefly through one example from the book that where this is all kind of spelled out? One of the more, yeah. one of the more, one of the more well-known uh, right. um, narratives. <coughs> So, let's see. I think the easiest and most self-contained is probably the story of Choni um, Hanagel, Choni the Circle Drawer. Um, and the story in which is well-known, he, he's asked to pray for rain, and no rain comes. He draws a circle around himself, demands that, rain co- that he won't leave until the rain comes, and the rain only comes a little bit, and then the rain... And he says, I don't want a little bit of rain, I want plenty of rain, and then the rain comes down so hard that everything's being destroyed. He says, no, I want a nice rain. And then the rain comes and comes and comes until all of Jerusalem is flooded, and they're up on the Temple Mount, and they say to him, stop the rain. He says, can't do that. Or he, he just says, really, well, go see if this stone is flooded. But he's saying, I can't do that. I don't pray for the rain to stop, which is precisely the legal context here. And then Shimon Mechetach comes and basically says, you know, if you weren't Choni Hamadim, we would, have to ex- we would have to excommunicate you, but what can I do? You're like the spoiled son of a, of, of a king who gets whatever he wants, and who am I to argue? Now, one of the things about this story, as is often in stories, is that the whole story is rarely told. I, I have actually one from a kids' magazine for my, from, for my children. The story usually ends, Honey and prayed for rain, and the rain came. Now, that's a sort of standard motif, and that creates a very simple story. Holy man, he's good, he prays for rain, but really... Right, it's brought as an example of the power of prayer. The power of prayer, right? Very simple. Um, And there are, in fact, lots of stories like that in Chazal, but this isn't one of them. Because here, there are a lot of questions. Did he really succeed, right? He can't really stop the rain. Everything's flooded. Has, in fact, this whole thing blown up in his face? I mean, I always picture sort of Mickey Mouse in, in the, the, the yeah, Sausage of the Apprentice, right, with yeah. the water coming down, coming down, and he can't stop it. He's unleashed this thing, but God is really having fun with him almost. Is that what's happening? It's not clear. Um, is he right for saying the rain, he shouldn't stop the rain, or is this a, uh, an exaggeration of the law? And then, finally, Shimon Ben Shetach comes and says, I don't know what to do with you, but this is definitely not the right way to go. Right. And what you get then is a conflict between these two fundamental approaches to, to Judaism, which in one way or another reappear throughout history to this day. On the one hand, you have this sort of charismatic uh, figure whose power is in prayer, who seems to have a special relationship with God. And the other side is Shilom Ben Shetach, who's the halachist, the, the great Talmud Chassam of the generations you see over and over again in different sources. And he's saying, well, according to your rules, God, this guy's doing stuff wrong. He shouldn't be doing this. But you're, you're doing miracles for him. And, and, and Shilom Ben Shetach is very confused and very, um, I think, really angry, angry at God. Because when he's, he's saying that, that, um, that he's like a, a child who his father's spoils, but he's blaming God. This is a dysfunctional family. And the father's church problems, the parents' uh, issue. So this whole question, it becomes really a very, very central question of to what extent is halacha the only arbiter of what's legitimate in the Jewish community? 
And on the flip side, to what extent do we accept these people who seem to be pushing the lines in terms of normative Judaism, but seem to be accomplishing things, seems to have real spiritual power? I think there you really see this, these sorts of tensions and questionings of, uh, of the very nature of the authority. And that's one of the stories that's featured prominently, yeah, prominently in the book. It's, yes. I mean, it, it, it would be surprising if it wasn't in the book because it's you know, probably one of the top two, three most yeah. well-known uh, narrative passages in the Mishnah. But the book also you know, brings to the fore passages that uh, people may have overlooked in their, in their study of the Mishnah. Right. And that's one of the... Uh, one of the, the benefits of, of spending time with uh, with the volume. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are sort of these some of these stories which aren't that well known, which or even if people know them, they don't think about them much as stories, but which, when you look at them in a larger context, become much more interesting. Um, <coughs> there are a series of stories, some of them in Sukkah and in a few other places, about violence in the Beit Hamikdash. Right. Which, you know, we see at one point, one point people remember them, but if you think of them collectively, there's something very strange. The Mishnah spends a lot of time telling these sort of ritual narratives, these things of how it was in the Beit HaMikdash. You get the sense of the perfect order. Each and every year they did this ritual exactly the same way right. because everything's pure. The Beit HaMikdash is this sort of timeless sort of place which is cut off from all the outside sort of forces which cause things to get messed up. Right. Even though we're talking about period of time, or, or two periods of time that stretched over hundreds of years. Right. We're talking about huge periods of time, periods of great political chaos also, and, and all sorts of right. things going on. And we know from Josephus and other sources that in fact the, the temple was in fact a regular political flashpoint right. where there would be riots against the Romans because that's where everyone was gathered, and if they were upset, that's when people would get uh, worked up. But these stories show these little outbursts of violence right. which <clears throat> sort of punctuate the temple and there's this sense that things aren't quite as simple as all that. Mm-hmm. That all of a sudden the the the, the, the Kohen Gadol gets attacked. All of a sudden the Kohen Gadol drops dead. Good, yeah. All the Kohen, someone gets pushed off the Rather altar. Than a fight between the Kohen Fights, you know. And the sense that I get is is that because that the temple is a complicated place. On the one hand it's a place of common yeah. order. Yeah. But when you're standing for God there's tremendous intensity. There's, everyone has a tremendous desire to right. serve, which might mean pushing other people out of the way. And there's the fundamental danger involved. It's unstable. And you see that going back to Tanakh. There's certain instability in that world, which it creates a very different picture. Did you say people. that the Mishnaic authors were in any way trying to be ironic? Painting a picture of this idyllic, perfect institution and demonstrating with these stories of all types of... Uh, uh, you know, at best, improper behavior. I, ironic is tough to know one way or another. And, of course, once again, see, the intention is hard to get to. It's not a question of what, what we have, what we see in front of us. But the way I tend to see is more of a sort of a dialogue, that there's sort of these different voices in the Mishnah, each one, you know, you know, bouncing off each other, these different perspectives, which are sort of just laid against each other without exact reconciliation. Uh, whether or not, you know, on a certain level it is ironic, how sharp that, whether that's supposed to be a critique, I find it hard to believe that the mission is sort of critiquing a form that's so central to the mission overall. But, you know, those are things that are sort of hard to get at. The Moshe, Moshe Simon Shoshan is the author of Stories of the Law, Narrative Discourse, and the Construction of Authority in the Mishnah from Oxford University Press. I should mention Moshe is an instructor at the Rothbrook School for Overseas Students at the Hebrew University. 
as well as uh, teaching at the Teachers College in Divac, Washington, here uh, here in Israel. And uh, we hope to see your your next volume soon. What are you What are you working on? Uh, a lot of different uh, a lot of different projects. One thing I'm interested in doing that I haven't really gotten started on is the role of miracles in Talmudic stories mm-hmm. and what they tell us about not just what they thought about uh, supernatural but also about the nature of these stories that these miracles are coming. Okay. Stories of the Law, Moshe, Simon, Shoshan.